0: as I mentioned earlier, I had a chance to be at a ministry conference with some of the ministry leaders of our staff this week, and there's some really good content. There was some great times of worship and just encouragement generally to to stay the course in what can be challenging in our world today. But I want to share with you this morning uh, what I believe was the most important uh, thing from the conference for me personally is... Are the Christies here? Good. Is Bruce here? Okay, Bruce. Good. I wanted to make sure you guys were here. Um, There were probably 2,000 ministry leaders at this conference, literally from all over the world. Uh, There were worship leaders. There were student leaders. There were children's ministry leaders. uh, There were executive pastor leaders. There were pastors, uh, senior pastors. And so it was a really good conference for all of us to go to together Uh, as a team, because there was something for all of us. But here's what I want you to know. I would not trade any of those 2,000 leaders for any of the leaders that we have in our church right now. I was most encouraged. (laughs) Truly, I was most encouraged... by the people I have the privilege to serve with every day. Bruce and I go back the farthest. He was uh, hired just a year after I began. In fact, he was my first official hire, which is like hitting a home run your first time at bat, you know. He does an incredible job in our student ministry, and he brings that same fun-loving attitude uh, to our church staff team as well. Um, In fact, the most famous saying that was mentioned by our staff team at the conference this weekend was, where's Bruce? (laughs) Bruce was always talking to somebody. He was always connecting, engaging, because that's just who Bruce is, and he does it well. And what a blessing the Christies have been to our children's ministry. I call them the dynamic duo. (laughs) Because each of them, Christy Burns and and Christy Connor, have a unique creative ability. Man, when you put those two together, it's just like unlimited creativity. They are always thinking and planning and doing things to enhance and help the children's ministry flourish here. They don't really need any guidance, to be honest with you, because they just get things done. And we are so blessed to have them in that role. And the same is really true for Brian. Many of you know this. We hired him as our worship pastor. (laughs) But now that he's been here, his influence extends well beyond that role. He is really responsible for bringing kind of life and structure and support to our small group ministry. He's led in the development of our region ministry. Brian is so good at adding structure and support because of just the way his mind thinks organizationally to just about everything that we do here at the church. And he's an incredible blessing. And I think all the staff would agree that nothing has brought more life to our staff team than the addition of Jeff Oldham. It was a common theme um, during his interview process to hear people say that he's just relationally gifted, (laughs) That has proven to be exponentially true. And I can tell you today that I can't think of a time since I've been here that our church has been, our staff team has been more unified and connected together than we are right now. And I credit a lot of that to Jeff. So, yes. <laughs> Lots of great things at the conference. But the best thing ever is who I got to be at the conference with. And I wanted to share that with you because I want you to be encouraged that our church is in such good hands. And I asked them to be in the sanctuary this morning, even though they have other things going on, because I wanted them to hear it. And if we could, before they leave, can we just express appreciation for them for all that they do? Thank you for doing that. Let me pray for us. Father, I am thankful, deeply thankful for the privilege to be a part of this church family, for the honor to serve us alongside such good people. I thank you for the deep sense of community that does exist here. And I do thank you for the bond of peace, the depth of unity that we are able to share On a daily basis. Through the life and ministry of this church body. What a gift this is. And I I don't know. I think a lot of times I take it for granted. Not realizing what a blessing it really is. But there are days when I'm reminded. Today being one of those days. How thankful I am. To be a part of such. An incredible family. Who loves you. And encourages me in my pursuit of knowing you. So thank you for our time together. We pray this in your name. Amen. All right, well, this morning we're going to finish up the gauntlet of Romans chapter 9 through 11, which, as we've seen, includes some of the more challenging passages in all of Scripture. But as it's often said, with great challenge comes great reward, right? So I hope that it's been helpful to you. And I also hope that you remember how we began this section several weeks ago when I encouraged you to remember that God is the author and creator of life. That He exists far above the limits of our own understanding. That salvation is His idea. That this is His story. And we are not the author of our own redemption. That we need to trust in Him much, much more than we trust in our own opinions and ideas. And to do that, as we talked about, we must preserve the integrity of divine mystery. Because remember, if you have all the answers and you've successfully removed all the mystery, then you have undeniably created heresy. We have to accept the fact that we will not find a satisfying answer to every theological question. Our finite minds cannot comprehend an infinite God. But but we need to know that's okay. Because even when we don't understand what God does, we can trust in who God is. Which points us back to what I believe to be the very central theme of these three chapters that we've been working with over the last several weeks. When Paul says back in Romans chapter 9 verse 6, But it is not as though the word of God has failed. And everything that he speaks to after that points back, I believe, to that central theme. See, Paul is honest. He's wrestling with Israel's unbelief. He longs, deeply longs for their salvation. So much so that he's willing to give up his own salvation, which is mind-blowing to me if it meant that someone else could be saved. He's trying to help them understand that righteousness is not a birthright for the Jew or for anyone else. It's a gift. Salvation is a gift that must be received and it cannot be earned by any works from the law. God's word has not failed, even though many in Israel have failed to follow God's word. And we've been learning that one of the main reasons it hasn't failed is because God has sovereignly protected a remnant of those who believe. And He has extended that invitation to believe to all the world. We read in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, For whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, whoever trusts in Jesus as Savior, will be saved. It's a promise. But since Israel has repeatedly rejected Jesus as the promised Messiah, God has allowed their hearts to be hardened in unbelief. Through the ministry of Paul, he has proclaimed that gospel message to the Gentiles. Those who were strangers to the covenants of promise, that's you and I, have been brought near by the blood of Jesus Christ. We need to remember, God will not abandon the promises that he made to Israel. They are literal promises to a literal people that will literally be fulfilled. And Paul, this morning, is going to pull back the curtain to kind of give us a picture of how these will unfold. So let's look at that together. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 11 and begin reading with me in verse 25. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them When I take away their sins. From the standpoint of the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Now, in the Bible, uh, the word mystery is often used to reveal what was previously a hidden truth that God now makes known. And in this case, Paul reveals three specific aspects of God's unfolding plan. First, he says that there is a partial hardening among Israel. Now, not a complete hardening, and and we know why. Because God has protected a remnant of those who believe. And yet, many in Israel have chosen not to believe. So God has allowed them to be ruled by their sinful stubborn hearts. And let me just say here, that's what we all deserve. That's what we all deserve. And left to ourselves, we would all be ruled by our sinful, stubborn hearts. And the longer we rebel, the more callous our heart becomes. You see, if God doesn't move first, if he doesn't reveal his gospel, if he doesn't reveal himself through the person and work of Christ, if we don't see the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, we remain dead in our trespasses and sins. And for the moment, God has allowed that partial hardening in Israel. He, in a sense, has left them to themselves. And the obvious question is, how long? How long will it last? Well, Paul answers that in this section when he says, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So in God's infinite wisdom, there is a time in which the Gentile mission is complete. And at that time, he turns back to Israel. In the same way that there was a point where Israel's rebellion reached a time where God then turned in discipline, there will be a time when his discipline is complete and he will once again turn to Israel as his people. And when that happens, Paul says, all Israel will be saved. Now, I don't know that that is intending to communicate every single Jew. It may, but I don't think that it does simply because of what we read back in Romans chapter 9 verse 6 where he says, for they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. But clearly, there will be an undeniable, unprecedented spiritual revival among the Jewish people of Israel. Paul then goes on and supports this with Isaiah 59, which is actually part of Isaiah's lament in the Old Testament when he is saddened by the rebellion of God's people. He says they're being ruled by injustice and unrighteousness. They've turned from the truth And he says, there's no one who can intercede. There's no one who can make things right. That is, until a deliverer from Zion comes. I believe that's Jesus. He's the deliverer from Zion, and he is the one who will intercede. Confronting their rebellion. In extending his forgiveness, he will establish justice. He will rule among his people, and he will fulfill the promises of God. And I believe this is what John talks about in Revelation when he's describing the millennial kingdom. Paul is pulling back the curtain and allowing us a glimpse of things that are yet to come. Israel, who had previously been rejected by the world, will at that time take center stage in the world. So Paul encourages the Gentiles, he encourages us to be humble because God has not finished with Israel. Even though he says they are currently enemies of the gospel and because of that, the gospel has been extended to the Gentiles. But there will be a day when that rejection is over. A day when they accept the gospel and all the promises of God will be completely fulfilled. And Paul says, for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. In other words, there is nothing that can prevent God from completing what he said he would do. Why? Because his word does not fail. Israel will turn back to God when God intercedes for Israel. And it will happen. Look at how he continues in verse 30. For just as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient, that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience so that he may show mercy to all. So four times in these three verses, Paul mentions the word mercy, a word that's used to describe the unrelenting, incomprehensible grace of God. But right alongside that word, he uses another word four times in these three words, and that's the word disobedience. This is a word that describes the obstinate, unpursuable condition of humanity. So this is like a standoff, right? and An immovable force. And uh, an unstoppable object. So Paul employs kind of a, a process of, of this playful exchange to show how God uses the disobedience of one to extend mercy to the other. He, he begins first with the Gentiles. We, we were the ones who were originally obstinate and unpursuable. We know that because of what we read in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12, that says, Remember, That you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. It says earlier in that same chapter, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature children of wrath. So don't be conceited because you're no different than the Jews. We were once ruled by sin. And powerless to break free. But in response to the disobedience of Israel, God showed his mercy to us. And he's been telling them that in time, he will once again extend God's mercy to Israel. And what he's trying to communicate, I believe, at least in part here, is that everyone has been disobedient. Everyone. And then despite that fact, God has shown mercy to us all. Romans 3.23 says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Everyone is obstinate and unpursuable. But when Jesus died on the cross, he brought mercy to us all. No exceptions. Only his forgiveness can overcome our disobedience. Only his grace can bring the dead to life. Either we give up control and surrender to God, or sin remains in control and we rebel against God. In the end, God's mercy is the only reason any of us believe. Look at how he continues in verse 33. So the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has become His counselor, or who has given to Him that it might be paid back to Him, for through, from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. It's a common practice if you read through the New Testament for Paul to string together words when he can't come up with just one. Right? He just—it's like threading pearls on a necklace, stacking one beautiful thing right next to another one. These are the truths of God's sovereign work of redemption, and Paul says they are deeply profound. They flow out of the riches of his infinite resources. They are informed by his limitless wisdom and knowledge. He knows the beginning from the end, and everything in between is filled with his good purposes. It it overflows with his goodness. His judgments are unsearchable, which means they cannot be traced. They cannot be tracked by human logic. His ways are unfathomable because they're beyond our understanding. Paul says no one informed him of his decisions. No one counseled him in what he needed to do. No one did that. Why? Because no one needed to. We serve an all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful God. We don't have all the answers for how God works. But when we truly know God, don't miss this, when we truly know God, we don't need all the answers. Knowing Him is enough, which I believe is why Paul quotes Job there in verse 35 of our, ver- of our passage. As you know, the whole book of Job is filled with questions and opinions about the work and wisdom of God, isn't it? I mean, Job and his friends are trying to figure out what in the world is happening in Job's life, and they have this deluge of questions and opinions and ideas and demands. And in the end, Job never learns of Satan's challenges in heaven. In the end, Job never receives any answers to any one of his questions. He doesn't receive an explanation for the experience of what he had gone through. Because here's why. None of that mattered when Job encountered the living God. Listen to his own words. In Job chapter 42, verse 1, he says this, Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You ask, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. See, Job realizes that he made a lot of assumptions about God that just simply were not true. That he made a lot of judgments that were unfounded. But God didn't highlight any of Job's mistakes. Instead, he simply revealed himself. He spoke of who he is. And because of this encounter, Job had no more questions. He's basically saying, I don't need to know your plans when I come to know you. You are far more wonderful than I could have ever imagined. Your plans are far more perfect than I could have ever foreseen. Look at how he continues in verse 4. He says, you said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. That was the demand. (laughs) My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself. I repent in dust and ashes. Job surrenders himself to the infinite mercy of God. Once he saw God with his own eyes and encountered the living God himself, there were no more questions in his heart. I know a lot of times we talk about, when I get to heaven, I'm going to ask, I'm going to find, I'm going to... No, you're not. No, you're not. Because just like Job, when you encounter Jesus, when you're face-to-face with the living God, (laughs) it won't matter. It won't matter. See, like Paul, Job knew that from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever, amen, because there is nothing more to be said. He is the creator and sustainer of all that is perfect and good. So let me encourage you as we kind of finish up this difficult section not to get bogged down in unanswerable questions or get lost in the worry of things yet to come. Instead, let me encourage you to find yourself resting in the presence of an all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful God. Know that you are rescued by a Savior, as Colossians 1.17 says, who is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. So just think about that for a minute. How comforting is it to know? Now think about this. Don't miss it. How comforting is it to know that the one in whom all things hold together, is the one who is holding you. Is there any better place to be? So turn your doubts into trust. Turn your worry into worship. Stop looking for all the answers and start resting in the presence of God. In fact, let me encourage you. If you begin to struggle, whatever situation that you may be in in life, let me share something with you that has been a real benefit for me. When I find myself in those times of worry and anxiety, and as you've heard my story, that's more often than I would like to admit. fact, as recent as last night, there's something that I do routinely in order to break through those moments. I simply stop. And I rehearse in my mind the words of the hymn Then sings my soul, then sings my soul, my Savior God to thee, how great thou art. And I don't know what it is. Actually, I do know what it is. There's something about stopping in that moment to recognize how big God is, that makes my problems seem a whole lot smaller. Now, it doesn't change any of my circumstances, but it shifts my perspective from things that I need to control to things that he's already got a hold of. And I can rest in him when I trust in him. And when I magnify him, my problems get small. And so I want to encourage you, with a similar practice when you find yourself in a difficult place. I don't know what your song may be or what your saying may be, but I would encourage you to stop in that moment and exalt the Lord and renew your trust in the infinite worth of Christ. And in that moment, magnify how big He is, and let's just see if perhaps in that moment your problems might get just a little bit smaller. It won't change your circumstances, but it will shift your perspective. And that may be all you need. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, we thank you for the way that you have made yourself known. And yet, we can get so lost in the things that are happening in the world around us, things that we struggle with in our own personal lives, that those problems get really big and you get really small. But Lord, help us. Help us to stop and to magnify your goodness, your greatness of the all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-living God that we serve. And as we exalt and magnify you, I pray that it helps put our problems into perspective. It won't take them away, but it will help us rest in you, through whom all things are being held together, and in you we are being held by you. So, Father, thank you for that promise and for your goodness, your mercies that are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. We pray this in your name. Amen would stand. Let's sing together. Let me leave you with something very simple. He's got this. The one who holds all things together, he's got you. You're one in whom Christ dwells and delights. You belong to the unshakable kingdom of God. The kingdom is not in trouble, and neither are you. So, when you go throughout your week, anytime you face what seems to be an obstacle you can't overcome, just pause and remember the God that you serve, who is all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful. Magnify and exalt Him and see what it does to the obstacle you face. Amen? Amen. Let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for our time together, for great reminders from your word about how incredibly wonderful and good and perfect you are. We don't have to know all the answers when we know you because we can rest in your all-sufficient, all-knowing, all-powerful ways. Father, we rest in you. We trust in you. Draw us deeply in relationship with you this week as we go about our days. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Have a great day.